Well, this is our second to last sermon on Romans. We're almost done. Uh, next week will be the last one. It's been almost 18 months uh, since we sort of first began. We've taken some breaks here and there. Uh, but, but one sermon left. The first service uh, clapped when they heard that. And I, wasn't, I, I didn't quite know how to interpret that. Like, we're glad it's over, or it's been great, or I, you know, I'll choose to believe that they meant it's been great. I think that's probably what they meant. Um, but, uh, but, but we're wrapping it up. Uh, just so you know what's coming after this, uh, next week we'll finish Romans, and then the, the week after that we begin an Advent series. And the word Advent means the coming or arrival of Jesus. And we often think about Advent as relating to the, the time when Jesus arrived the first time as a baby with Christmas. Well, for this Advent, we're going to look ahead to his second coming. And so we're going to do a series called Return of the King. Uh, no hobbits involved uh, with this, but return of the king. We're going we're gonna to look at the return of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at uh, what some people would call eschatology or end times. Uh, we're going to focus on that for four weeks and really try to, to ramp up our anticipation of the Lord's return. So uh, that's what's coming and would love to have you kind of join us for that and be part of it. Um, but for now, we're going to dig into this particular section of, of Romans, and, and we're going to just really focus on verses 17 to 20. Uh, before this, Paul had been issuing all these greetings. Hey, tell so-and-so hi, tell so-and-so hi, greet them. And then after this, uh, for just a moment, he's going to uh, give some greetings from other people that are with him. He lists a bunch of people in verses 21 through 23, companions of Paul that are with him and send greetings. The only one that I'll just mention briefly, because maybe when you read it, you went, wait, what does that mean, is in verse 22, it says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. And you might be thinking, Luke, for 18 months, you've been telling us Paul wrote this letter. And now Tertius says he wrote it. Well, what happened is Paul, Paul, Paul uh, I, didn't have, I don't have the word, he, he dictated it. That's what the word was. I couldn't think of it earlier, and I couldn't think of it again. He dictated the letter. So Paul told Tertius what to write, and Tertius uh, wrote it down. A lot of people think that's maybe because Paul had bad eyesight, or just Tertius had really good handwriting. I don't know. Um, but uh, but that's, that's why that's there. But what we'll focus on for today is really verses 17 to 20. And, and Paul's going to address something that's kind of surprising. And, and some commentators have even wondered, why is this here? Because Paul seems to be sort of landing the plane, you know? In, in 16, he said, hey, greet these people. Then he's going to say, all these people send greetings. But in the middle, he's got this kind of odd, like, I don't know if it's like, um, there are times I'm on the phone with my dad and I'm, we're about to hang up and he's like, oh, wait, wait, one more thing. And then, like, we go for a while. Oh, wait, one more thing. It's like, how many things do you still have left to tell me? Let's just talk about them. Um, but I don't know if Paul had, like, a one more thing moment or what, but, but it's like something has occurred to him, and he has one more thing that he has to really address. And that's actually a pretty serious thing, and it's a thing that kind of confronts us a little bit, and it confronts us in a few different ways, uh, especially for us as Americans, because I think there's, as I've reflected on this, I, I think that Americans like two things that that seem to not make sense together. We like both uniting and dividing. Even just think about the name of our country, the United States of America, right? A, a state has with it the idea of, of sovereignty, and we're different, and we divide, and we even have an amendment that is to protect states' rights. And, and occasionally, different states will opt out of different laws that happened, or they'll threaten secession, or something like that, um, or, or whatever. Because, and yet, we're the United States. We have state government. We're divided. We're different. 
We have federal government. We're united. And, and the same thing t- seems to be true even kind of interpersonally. We like the idea of unity. People will often talk about, can't we just get along? I wish the people in Washington could just talk across the aisle. I wish there was more civility. Can't we just get along? At the same time, we love to divide. We love to listen to our favorite talk show hosts and read our favorite websites and, and do all the things that sort of remind us of how different we are. And so we're kind of... We're kind of confused. We aren't really sure what to do with that. And this passage kind of confronts both of those things. This passage on one hand says, unity is really important and you need to protect it. On the other hand, this passage also says, but but false unity that's not based on any conviction isn't unity at all. And if that is threatened, then you need to divide. And so both of those things sort of Uh, get challenged here a bit in this passage. The key uh, command happens in verse 17. So if you have your Bible, look at verse 17. Paul says this, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out. Uh, That word means beware, to be on guard, to be on the lookout. Picture a soldier on lookout. Be alert. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. Avoid them. This word divisions is, has the idea of, of factions or dissensions. Uh, Paul's saying watch out for people that are, that are divisive, people that are dividing people up, but also not just sort of faction uh, type stuff, but also those who create obstacles. Do you see that phrase? That phrase it, in the original language literally means to set a trap. It's kind of an analogy. Watch out for those who, who seek to trap you. Trap you in what way? In ways, he says, that are contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. I was watching this video this week with my kids. Um, It was this uh, cheese commercial with this uh, mouse, right? This little mouse sneaks out, and there's a mouse trap. Maybe you've seen this. It's about a minute and a half long on YouTube. And and the mouse trap is there, and the the mouse is, like, playing with the cheese. And I'm just sort of waiting for the moment when it snaps, right? Well, at some point it snaps, and I jump. And then it shows this mouse just laying there in the trap. And my wife is like, what's wrong with you? Why are you showing this to our children? And then because the, the mouse had eaten the cheese, you know, Eye of the Tiger breaks out. And the mouse starts bench pressing the trap and he escapes, right? And it's this really fun and, and cute thing. But, but anyway, I thought of trap and I thought of that. And I thought, what's the point of a trap? It's to catch something. It's to snag somebody. Now, now get this. This is really important. In this passage, Paul doesn't necessarily indicate whether he thinks that the people who are causing divisions and creating obstacles, whether they intend to do it or not. He doesn't speak to whether they are sincere and just misguided or whether they're malicious in their intent. But his point is, either way, watch out for people that are going to trap you in things that aren't true, in things that are contrary to the doctrine, to the teaching, to this body of, of truth that you've been taught. And then he says this, and here's the verb of the, of the verse, avoid them. Avoid them. Don't just watch out. When you see people who are going to lead you astray to things contrary to to what God's saying, whether they're well-intentioned or not, when you see that, avoid them. Steer clear. Stay away. Now, that's a remarkable thing to hear from Paul. 
Because all along the way, Paul has talked about the unity that we have in Christ. That Jews and Gentiles and powerful and powerless and men and women and all these people can get along. But what he's saying is that is so precious that if something begins to threaten it, get rid of the thing that threatens it. Avoid those people. This is serious. Uh, Paul's talking about something that would lead you to possibly expel a person from a congregation or to shun or to say, you're not welcome here anymore. You go, gosh, that, that seems judgmental and... And there's an element to it, I guess, that requires wisdom and discernment. But this is a serious, serious thing. Now, this isn't the only place where Paul says something like this. He says this actually uh, in a number of places. In 2 Timothy 2, he's advising his protege, the guy he's mentored as a pastor. And here's what he says. He says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. He says, servants of the Lord, ministers of the Lord, are not to be quarrelsome, not to be divisive. Titus 3 then says this, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. And I'll tell you, as a church, there's been one time in the history of our church where we have uh, had to sit down as elders and write a letter and meet with a person and say, listen, your behavior is divisive. It's quarrelsome. It's unhelpful to the church. And it has to change or you will be asked to leave. And it changed. We rejoice with that and we are thankful for that. But that's how serious this is. It's so serious that Paul's willing to kind of interrupt the conclusion of his letter to say, oh, hey, hey, one more thing. This really matters. So the question then is, well, why does it matter so much? Why is this so serious? Why, why would a, a church that is so focused on loving people regardless of their differences and bringing people together united at the foot of the cross, why, what would compel a church like that, which is everything Paul's been describing, to, to say, hey, if you're, head, if you're taking us in a direction contrary to the teaching you've heard, you're out of here. What, what reasons would compel us? Well, Paul's gonna give us three here in this passage. Three reasons to avoid divisive people and false teachers, people that are teaching things contrary to what Paul has said. The first reason is this, is that divisive people serve themselves. Divisive people serve themselves. He says, verse 18, take a look. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So again, Paul says it's not like these people come out on their face and are so mean and cruel. They're, they're actually pretty nice people. But in reality, they're serving themselves. Do you see that? For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ. They're not mastered by the master Christ. What are they mastered by? He says, their own appetites. That word literally means their bellies. Again, it's a, it's a kind of metaphor to say they're ruled by their stomach. They can't help it. What they're about is fulfilling their own desires, fulfilling their appetites, right? You kind of imagine, I, I picture, you know, I've seen videos of kids that are like brought into a, 
a conference type room and said, hey, we're going to put some fresh baked cookies right here and we're going to leave for a while. And if you don't eat them, you can have another one, right? And the kid like gets as close to it as they can and they poke it and they smell it and they try to eat it. And, and you just see they're ruled by their bellies. They can't help it. They can't stop it. it's, It's about what they want. It's about what they need. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying these divisive people, these people that are leading you astray, whether it's leading you to add rules to the gospel or uh, say obedience doesn't matter, whether it has to do with ethical teaching, whether it's dividing up into racism or classism, uh, whatever it is, Paul's saying, watch out and avoid those people. Because they're not, their interest isn't really about serving Christ. It's about serving themselves. This is a subtle thing. It can be. Oftentimes, this is not about serving Christ and loving people. This is about being right. It's about being important. It's about having a platform, having influence. It's a temptation for all of us who want to be liked. It's especially a temptation for leaders. I, I have the perfect personality to be a cult leader, I think. Um, so you should be really careful around here. Um, and that was confirmed to me this week because uh, our staff did a, we did a, a pers- uh, this was really fun. We did a spiritual gifts test and we did a few different personality tests, like real personality tests, not like which friend's character are you. <laughs> like real things, you know. Um, and, I, and, and one of them was the Myers-Briggs, and I came uh, back as an ENTP, and we, we talked as a, as a group about what everybody was, and we poked fun at each other. Well, I read this description of it to my wife that night, and it was pretty funny. She, here, here it is. ENTPs are usually verbally as well as cerebrally quick and generally love to argue, both for its own sake and to show off their debating skills. ENTPs tend to have a perverse sense of humor as well and enjoy playing devil's advocate. This sometimes confuses, even angers, those who don't understand or accept the concept of argument as a sport. <laughs> and she was like, that's like a biography of your life. Like, that's you. <laughs> like, that's crazy how accurate that is. Um, which is funny, because her and I d- don't argue that much. I've learned that that makes her mad. Um, <laughs> but but he, here's, here's the point of that, is... When people are led astray by, by false teaching, when people are led into divisive things, it's never by someone who comes and says, hey, pretty sure I'm a false teacher. Follow me, <laughs> right? Never happens that way. It happens through people who are compelling, people who are quick-witted, people who have a smooth tongue. They, they, they know how to communicate, right? That's what Paul says in verse 18. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. It's people who can subtly make things about themselves, which is one of the reasons. I I hope you do this. I hope that you are always looking at the Scriptures to see if what I say is true. I hope that the reason you do things is not because, well, Luke said it, or the pastor said it, or the church said it. Because you, you can, as we'll see in a moment, you can be deceived. And I hope that the, the fruit you see over time in the course of my ministry is a desire to make much of the Lord and not much of me. And I'm thankful for elders and pastors and, and leaders and just friends in our church that point out when things get a little bit goofy and when I act a little bit too much like this. Right? This is a good description of me apart from Jesus. And then the Spirit comes in and begins to reign and, and change some things around. 
But, but that kind of leads us to this next thing, is how easily it is for us to be deceived. Here's, here's the second reason why it's so important to avoid div- divisive people and false teachers, is because innocent people can be deceived. Look at the end of verse 18. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. This word deceive, interestingly, it's used in 2 Corinthians 11, this exact word deceive, to describe how Satan deceived Eve in the garden. He's saying these smooth, uh, talking, uh, flattery-oriented, blow smoke up your skirt teachers, they're the kind of people that are leading you, they are satanically leading you away. They are satanically deceiving the hearts of the naive. Now, naive sort of feels maybe insulting, but this word could also be translated innocent or blameless. People that maybe just don't know better. Uh, it, it, doesn't mean, it doesn't mean stupid. It just means uninformed or undiscer- not discerning. Right? And, and, so, and so that's how this works. And so I think it's just so interesting to see how this happens is through smooth talk and flattery, right? No one ever like, comes out breathing fire. It's usually coated in a much nicer thing, right? It might be something like where you hear someone talk about how you could have your best life now. And if there's something out there that you want, if there's a circumstance in your life that needs to be changed, you just speak it. Because you're like God, and if you speak it, it'll happen. You'll attract positive things to you. In fact, if you do that enough, every day could be a Friday. Now, a few of you are laughing because you know that what I'm doing there is quoting Joel Osteen's sermons and his book titles. And Joel Osteen should be avoided. He preaches a gospel, if you can call it that, I guess it's his form of good news that is about me and about me having everything that I want now. It's not a call to repent from sin. He doesn't want to use sin or talk about sin or judge people as sinners. It's not a call to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ regardless of what he allows to have happen in your life. It's not a call to endure suffering for the sake of Jesus. It's, it's a different gospel. It's, it's something, as Paul says here, contrary to the doctrine you've been taught in Romans. Read Romans. You don't get Joel Osteen there. And I don't want to be, I don't want to be mean-spirited about it, but, but, but we have a hard time going, well, you know, yeah, there's false teachers. Well, who? Well, there's one. Don't listen to him. Don't watch him. It's not helpful. You go, well, but he said this, and it was, re-. listen, a broken clock is right twice a day. And, and, and so occasionally I've watched and I've, or I see a picture and I see a, you know, a, an arena full. I mean, 20,000 people there listening. And, and I go, how, did that, how does that happen? Verse 18. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Paul says, watch out for that. Be careful with that. Let me tell you this as well. The naive don't know they're naive. That's the nature of it, right? And so part of what we need in the church is we need mature, experienced people and leaders who are able to spot out error. It's interesting, in Titus 1, one of the qualities of an elder is that they're able to refute error. That we have to, as mature, uh, those of us among uh, you who know the Bible and who know Scripture and have walked with the Lord and are filled with the Spirit, you've got to help shield and protect 
young or naive, ill-informed people from error. This doesn't mean, by the way, that you need to kind of put on your junior Holy Spirit badge and just point out every little thing that's possibly wrong, but it means, it means help people because they, in some cases they don't know better. When I was in college, I, I uh, was a couple years into being a Christian, and one summer I played in a summer baseball league in Alaska, and by God's great providence, I ended up living as my host, my host dad was a pastor and his family, a pastor in Assemblies of God Church, and just a huge blessing to live in their home for two summers and to spend time with them, and it just, it, they're great friends to this day. And I, I remember one summer I had a, a guy on my team that was LDS, and I didn't know much about the LDS faith, or that, you know, I, I, didn't, I, hadn't, I didn't live here yet, um, so I didn't know uh, many people, and I remember talking to him about his faith, and, hey, what do you, you know, tell me about what you believe, and he said, well, you know, we, we believe in Jesus, we believe uh, that Jesus is the Savior, we believe that he, he, he died, and that there's grace for us, he used a lot of the same words that I would use. And I came home to my host dad, the, Pastor Jim, and I said, hey, I think maybe Mormons are like true Christians. And he walked me through how well. When they say Jesus, they're talking not about an eternal uh, being that has always existed as God, but they're talking about a created being. When they talk about a savior, what they're talking about is that they believe Jesus died to kind of level the playing field, but you better add your good works to what he did. When they talk about scripture, it's the Bible is the word of God, but only if it's translated correctly and we don't really read it. So he helped me, not to be, again, not to be mean-spirited, not to be mocking, but to wisely say, hey, you're not mature enough in your faith to be able to sniff out the differences yet, and you need to see this. I'm really thankful that he helped me there. Well, there's one more reason, uh, and this is the biggest reason why the Apostle Paul is so serious about this, why he takes the time to warn us and why we should take this seriously. Uh, here's the third reason, is that evil is real and dangerous. Evil is real. The people who say, well, let's just get along. It doesn't really matter what you believe, you know, just as, as long as you're sincere, let's just get along. Let's just be united. I think the error of that, that I think this passage is confronting, is, is, is people that are saying that are denying that there are real differences. And they're denying that real differences lead to real outcomes in people's lives and that some of those have very destructive consequences. Oftentimes that can't we just get along thing is really uh, denying the reality that evil exists and that it's real. So here's what Paul says in verse 19. He says, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. Paul says, you got a great thing going. I'm so happy. I'm so encouraged. I've heard across the world. I haven't even visited you guys in person, but I've heard about your obedience. I've heard about your faith. I am so encouraged. But the reason I'm doing this, he says, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Paul says, listen, there are things in the world that are good. They really are. Become experts at those. And there are things in the world that are evil. Be as inexperienced as you can. All right, one commentator said it this way. I want you to see yourselves as experts in good and not even beginners in evil. Paul says, listen, 
I want you to be able to discern what's right and wrong, but when it comes to experiencing evil and living in it and pursuing it, I want you to be clueless. I want you to be, he uses actually that word naive, right? It's, it's really kind of the same root word. Uh, wise as to what is good, innocent as to what is evil. I want you to be naive, be clueless as to how to sin. And the reality is, if you follow these false teachings that are contrary to what I've told you, it will lead you to sin. It will lead you toward evil. It will lead you in places that are destructive for your love for God and your love for other people. Don't go there. I'm writing this to protect you. Right, that's the, I, I just feel this sort of fatherly care in verse 19 where he says, your obedience is known to all. I rejoice over you, but I want you to know something. Right? It's, he's saying, you got a good thing going. Protect it. Protect it. And, and here's what I've seen as a, as a pastor for 10 years uh, with people I know and with people, uh, people of people I know. Hardly anybody leaves the faith at once. Most people drift away from their faith. There are people who I've seen who I would say, your obedience is known to all. I rejoice over you. I would have said that at one point, who no longer have either a vibrant faith or any faith at all. And how did that journey happen? Well, it didn't happen in just one step. It happened in a process. It happened in a drift. And Paul is saying here, beware, watch out. I want to just share with you what I think the drift is, as I've sort of tried to kind of think about and analyze and go, what, what, what's happening when we, when we walk away uh, from this? And so here's what, I, here's what I think happens. I think these things tend to follow these sort of five progressive steps. The first one is a really significant experience. Uh, oftentimes this experience isn't necessarily chosen or pursued, but it happens to you. Sometimes it's just something that you do choose, or you do pursue, but it's an experience. It's something that you go, wow, that was really interesting. Wow, I don't know how to feel about that, or, or whatever. I'll give you some examples in a minute. Then you have that incredible or significant or difficult or whatever it is, this significant experience, and it makes you begin to question what you believe. I said question biblical teaching. It might be even more accurate to say you, you question your beliefs. Have I been taught the right stuff? It's what I believe about things. How, do, how does it line up with what I just experienced? I had this really significant experience, but how does, how does my belief line up there? You begin to ask those questions. Now listen, at this point, these two steps aren't bad, right? We have all kinds of experiences, and we should often be asking, how does my experience line up with or fit with what the Bible says about what's true? But that's a totally appropriate thing. The key moment happens at, at step three. At step three, there's a decision to make. I've got this experience. I've got the scripture. The question is, will the experience trump the scripture or will the scripture trump and inform my experience? And that decision is a key decision. Now, for someone that drifts away from, off, here's what happens for people that stay strong in the faith. Oftentimes, they experience steps one through three. They go, I had this experience. I'm not sure if I did the right thing. I'm not sure if that, was a, if that was good. I don't know how to make sense of it. Well, what does the Bible say? What do I believe? Okay, let's go to the Scripture. Okay, the Scripture trumps it. And faith in God remains strong, and love for God remains vibrant, and off you go. But for people that drift, what happens is they choose, I'm going to let experience trump the Scripture. 
I'm going to read my experience into the Scripture. And that then leads to step four, where you find false teaching to confirm your views. Because there's always somebody that will agree with you. There's always somebody that will find a verse for something, right? And so rather than submitting to what's true, you go, well, I'm going to do what I want to do, but I'll find people to sort of make a biblical case for it. And then the last step is this, bye-bye vibrant faith. This is how people drift. Now, here's the other thing. Every time that I've seen this happen, there's one other component. And I didn't put it in this order because I'm not exactly sure where it happens, but it's always part of the equation when people drift from their faith. And that's this. It's a withdrawing from meaningful Christian relationships. It's a withdrawing from community. It's withdrawing from people who are going to encourage me to, to see truth the right way and to trust God. There's always a withdrawal away from that. And we become isolated and we become an echo chamber of our thoughts and we drift away. Let me give you just a couple examples. Examples that really just come right out of things we've talked about over our time in Romans. The first one is this. Think about pain and suffering. A number of people have been awakened to their faith because of pain and suffering. Other people have drifted from the faith because of their pain and suffering. And when pain and suffering happens, right, that's a significant experience. It's not an experience anyone chooses. It's not an experience anyone wants. You would like to have it go away. But when you have real pain, real loss, sustained, significant pain, whether that's physical or emotional or relational, oftentimes it's something that happened in your past and happened to you and you had no control over. You go, okay, I have this significant experience of pain. How do I make sense of that? So you go to step two and you start to question and you ask really good, important questions like, how could a good God allow pain like this? If God really loves me, why would he have allowed these things to happen to me? Those are very good, very important questions. There's actually a whole book of the Bible, the book of Job, dedicated to that question. And that's when the key decision happens. Will I trust that God is sovereign and good no matter what? Will I trust that God has proven his love for me by sending his son to experience pain and suffering in my place? And that if God has allowed that to happen to him and he still allows it to happen to me, he must have a redeeming purpose? And will I trust what we've seen in Romans 8 that the day is coming when all things will be made new and pain and suffering will go away? Will I trust that? Will I submit my experience to God's word? Or will I say, there's no way that a good God could allow this to happen. There's no way that this can be true. And then you find someone to affirm it. There's a lot of new atheist books that would love to talk to you about how ridiculous it is to think that a good God could allow suffering. And so maybe you go there. Maybe you go in a little bit more Christian-ish direction and you read about open theism, kind of the idea that the future is open to God. He couldn't stop it because he didn't really know what was coming and he doesn't totally know the future and free will is a really powerful thing in people and you can't stop it. And Whatever you do, you find that. And bye-bye, vibrant faith. On the flip side, people at number three who take their pain and suffering and begin to trust the Lord through it, 
they experience typically deeper faith and trust and love of God than anyone else. But that's the process this follows. The next thing that I think is, is hap- it's happening, it's happening a lot, it's going to happen a lot more in our culture and, and perhaps even in our church has to do with our views toward homosexuality and gay marriage. This is an area that this is kind of how it works, right? There's some sort of significant experience. Maybe a family member comes out as gay. Maybe a close friend or friends at work identify themselves as gay or lesbian, and this is a thing where you know these people, and you love these people, and they're nicer people than most of the Christians you know, and you go, these are fantastic people. By the way, that's a, that's a good thing. We should be pursuing relationships like that and rejoicing and thanking God for relationships like that. Maybe this significant experience is more personal. Maybe it is some sort of unwanted same-sex attraction. Maybe it's some sort of abuse experience that's confusing and reframes things in a way that doesn't make sense. I, I don't know. But you have some sort of significant experience about this, and then you begin to ask questions. It might be questions like, well, God, it seems like these these desires came naturally. I, f- I feel like people seem to be sort of born this way. If, that, if they're born this way, surely that's from you, isn't it? How can something that someone's born with be wrong, right? You ask a question like that, or you ask, well, isn't this really about love? And it, the Bible's all about love, and if the Bible's about love, then that really is what should win the day. And, and, and you just begin to ask these questions. Now listen, those two steps are great steps. They're important. If you're curious about this, I, I spent, you can go way back to the beginning of Romans, I, I spent two weeks talking about a theology of homosexuality and our attitude toward the issue. Go back and listen to that and explore that and get some of those questions answered. But here's what happens. We make the step to step three. And ultimately, our experience, our feelings, trumps what's true. And so we go, well, these people are too nice. There's no way God could condemn that as a sin. These people love each other. There's no way God could condemn that as a sin. And then we move to step four. We find people who will make all kinds of arguments, even using the Bible. One very popular one right now is a guy named Matthew Vines. He's a young guy. He's a good communicator. And on most issues, he's in line with orthodox evangelical teaching. He's a really kind of compelling young man. But his teaching on on this particular issue is that uh, when in Romans 1, when it talks about exchanging uh, natural relations for unnatural ones, he's arguing that it's the natural urge for same-sex relationship that some people have, that if they resist it, that's their sin. His argument would be, the sin of Romans 1 is resisting your natural urges. And so, if you decide, I'm going to let my experience trump the Scripture, then you're going to find a guy like that. And you're going to watch his long YouTube video, and you're going to read his book, and you're going to go, see? The Bible says this is not that big a deal. In fact, the Bible might even endorse that I be gay. And bye-bye, vibrant faith. Now listen, these are hard issues. And these are complex things. And they involve real people and real lives and real relationships. They are not clean or easy. There's mess all over it. And yet what Paul is saying is, you've got a faith that's vibrant and real. Don't drift from it. Hold fast to what's true. Don't let the smooth talking 
good speaking people who are saying things contrary to the meaning of the scripture, don't believe them, don't follow them, avoid them. Stay true to Jesus. Why, Paul? Why do I want to stay true to Jesus? Because here's what he's going to say. Because in the end, Jesus wins. Look at verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I love the little kind of wordplay here. The God of peace will crush Satan. I think that's, that's an amazing thing to say. God is a God of peace. God is a God who brings peace. God is a God who has brought peace to humanity through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son Jesus. And it is through that same act of peace where God is declaring a truce with humanity, inviting us not to be his enemies but to be his friends. It's through that that God will crush the head of Satan. We've already seen in this book of Romans that the power of sin has been broken. The presence of sin remains. And so there's a hope still to come that if we are faithful, if we endure, if we are sustained by God's grace, and that's what he talks about, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, that we will be on the right side of history when the God of peace crushes everything that's evil. That day's coming. We're going to look at that in the coming weeks as we look at the return of Jesus. That right side of history thing is a funny phrase, isn't it? Here's the right side of history. God is coming back in the person of Jesus. And evil is serious and it's real. He's going to deal with it. And so we should do whatever it takes now to protect ourselves and to fight against it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your provision for us, for the way you protect and provide for us. Thank you for your word and how it warns us. And God, I pray for any of us today who are somewhere on this drift, who have real questions. And God, thank you that that your word doesn't cause us to back away from questions. It's filled with people who doubted and all kinds of good questions. But God, I pray that our hearts would be humble, that we would desire to hear what's true from your word and not what we want to hear from our feelings. God, be uh, among us in such a way to protect us from ways that we would fall off into error. And God, thank you for the promise that Christ will return. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.